winter. Hello, and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 73rd episode in the series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Alva, Gometra, Ered, and Little Colonsey. I'm Alistair Satchel. I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull, and I'll be your host today. Hello to you. I hope this finds you happy and well, wherever and whenever you may be. This episode is a chat with Cressida Cowell, world-renowned author of the How to Train Your Dragon books, the Wizard of One series, and the Which Way to Anywhere books. For those of you coming to this podcast for the first time, What We Do in the Winter is a podcast and film series which looks to amplify the voices of the people of the islands around Mull, off the west coast of Scotland. We have a population of just around 3,200 people here, but each year, easily half a million visitors come to our shores. Each of those visitors tell their stories of the times that they've had on these islands and the experiences they've had, and that's vital. People need to have holidays and have dreams of wonderful places. But that voice dominates how our communities are seen in our collective narrative and in the media. It tends to render us down into the supporting cast of the film where the holidaymaker is the star. This project is an attempt to redress the balance of stories by celebrating the voices of the people of our islands, showing that we are real people in a real place with real lives and real concerns, full of stories, tales and adventures. And so we're making connections with people all over the world and sharing stories that draw us together, whilst highlighting the real lives of the people of our islands. Our guest today, Cressida Cowell, grew up in London, where her dad, Michael Hare, had significant roles in several well-known organisations, which we'll hear about in the course of our conversation. Wilderness was of great importance to Cressida's dad. In the 1970s, Michael bought the island of Little Colonsey, which lies between Alva and Staffa, which was to become the family's summer home. The island, its history, topography and setting had a profound effect on young Cressida's imagination, and her summers would be spent in a reverie of story-making, listening to the tales her dad would tell her of the people of these islands past. These experiences led to Cressida becoming an author, and not just any author. Her works have been translated into 38 languages and sold tens of millions of copies around the world. There are film and TV adaptations of her work. In our time together, we talked about her childhood memories of Little Colonsey and the people who helped her family to build their home there. We talk about her father and his love of nature. We explore the impact that the island had on her imagination and how that led to her career. Cressida goes on to talk about her maternal grandfather, Alan Hare, and his experiences in the Second World War in Albania and how that generation of people influenced her writing. We then talk about the importance of the natural world and the nature of climate change. We do talk about death several times in our conversations, both of older and younger people, so please do be aware of this if this is something you might find upsetting. I owe a big thank you to my dear friend Colin Morrison for putting me in contact with Cressida. Colin and his family run Turismara, which, departing from Alva Ferry, to my mind, is the best way to see Staffa, Fingal's Cave, and to meet the puffins on Lunga for some puffin therapy. See the links in the episode notes for more details. Most importantly of all, though, at the end of this episode, Cressida kindly took the time to answer three questions from Lachlan, one of her young readers who lives in Dervik, who sent me some questions to ask her. Everyone who takes part in the podcast gets a pack of the Island Bakery's mouth-wateringly wonderful lemon melts, or another pack of their delicious biscuits. So I'll need to figure out a way to sail a box out to Little Colonsey for Cressida as we spoke over Zoom. I'll be back at the end of the episode with a few more bits and bobs, now, with great pleasure, I'm delighted to hand you over to Cressida Cowell. 
my name is Cressida Cowell and I am the author and the illustrator of the How to Train Your Dragon books and the Wizards of Once series and my new Which Way to Anywhere series and the picture book. I didn't do the illustrate the one I didn't do the illustrations for is my Emily Brown picture book series. And I'm also I'm so I'm a writer and illustrator, but I'm also very proud to have been the Waterson's Children's Laureate. Um, so and I'm an ambassador for the National Litsy Trust. And so and I'm very proud of all that as well. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. Your connection to the area around Mull is quite specific. Can you tell the listener, how are you connected to Mull? Well, my dad, um, his job was in London, but he was also, his heart, his heart was really in the, in the wilderness. I mm. mean, put it this way, when, when he died, uh, his hospital room, uh, he was, he was not well for uh, quite a bit before he died. It was, surrounded by photographs yeah and the photographs were of one place mm. and the place was little Collinsay. i'm ready i'm ready for you started and i'm feeling rather tearful mm. because when when you die you you know things become very clear yes you know what really matters to you and we knew what really mattered to my father and what mattered to him was little Collinsay. So everywhere, all around his hospital bed, he couldn't move. But there was pictures of the island everywhere, of flowers, of birds that he loved. Of That was his heart place, you know. That was his heart place. So even though he had many responsibilities elsewhere and many, you know, he was a, yeah, he was a busy man. Mm. That was where he really wanted to be. And he was chairman of the RSP, but, you know, he was an environmentalist, really. He was chairman of the Royal Society for Protection of Birds. Uh, after he retired, he was chairman of Kew Gardens. You know, so he really cared about the environment and, and, and doing something about, about the environment. Um, and, what, and what that meant for us as children is that every year from when I was a baby, we would be dropped off by a, a local boatman on a little uninhabited island off the west coast of Mull, which, and the little island is called Little Collins, eh? An island so small, this is not, this is Maya's time yet. It's a little bit bigger than Staffa, um, but not much. Mm. <laughs> it's the next door island to Staffa. We'll be dropped off by a local boat, boatman and, and initially picked up again two weeks later. Wow. Nothing on the island, no houses back then. This is when they had just little babies. So my first memories of Little Collins, eh? are in a in a tent anybody who's had camped in the 1970s will know those tents were not waterproof it was wandering around with a soggy <laughs> with a soggy loo roll looking for somewhere <laughs> you know but you know and then from when i was nine it, it took a long time to build the house and and uh three guys built the house um and uh and, and it wasn't until I was nine that the house was built. And initially we were kind of camping there. But then my dad got a boat. And, and so, you know, as I always say to kids, there was no Tesco's. On the island. There's nothing. There's literally, there's just one house. And um, so then he got a boat so we could catch fish to eat. And then we spent the whole summer in this little island with no, um, no electricity. Um, so no television. And my dad used to tell us stories that were from the islands roundabout. You can hear where, where I'm getting round mm. to, the Isle of 
book is is Little Colonsay. You know that. Um, you know, you can even hear in the name, Burke, muck, egg, rum, Burke. It fits right in. You know, my dad used to tell us stories from the islands round about. And, and, um, and a lot of the stories were about dragons because the Vikings, once upon a time, inv- when they invaded Great Britain, this was the first place they came to and it was the last place they left. Mm. Um, so for 400 years... This was Viking Scotland. I mean, many of the Viking. I think one of the Viking kings actually died on one of these um, Hebridean islands. I'm forgetting which one it was. But you know, this Viking Scotland. I, I never went to Scandinavia as a child. The whole inspiration for how to train your dragon is here. It's right here. And if ever, <laughs> if ever a cave should have a dragon in it, it, it's Staffa Fingal's yeah. Cave. Um, and, and one of the stories from Mull actually was about a, a dragon that has turned into a mountainside. That my dad used to read me the story that was from Mull. And if you go to Little Collinsy, if you happen to be going to Little Collinsy, which I would recommend, Taramara Tours, by the way, go mm-hmm. to Alva Ferry mm-hmm. and that, that way round to see Staffa, you'll pass Little Collinsy and you'll notice that there's a hill behind the little house that looks exactly like the back of the sleeping dragon. You know, I used to imagine that that dragon was looking over the house. So that's a long answer to your mm. question, but you can see how important little Colonsay was yeah. uh, to both my father and and to me. Yeah. You know, so I suppose I first went to Little Colonsay when I was older my now. So I was that was fifty five years ago. That's wonderful. Five years ago. Oh my goodness. That's brilliant. yes 55 years it's extraordinary the um it's great that that, that the viking kingdom that's inspired you if you go back to other Mm -hmm. children's literature of significant nature um Mm -hmm. the the world of thomas the tank engine of course is set in the island of sodor Mm -hmm. and of course that norse kingdom was Mm -hmm. called sodor this whole area that was was called sodor so that's uh, yeah it's kind of lovely that that connection there between the two literary worlds it's amazing well, I think this this landscape is so it's so magical. I mean, it's so breathtakingly beautiful. Obviously, I'm a bit biased, and you probably mm. are too. But it's so breathtakingly beautiful that I think it is very inspiring. I think you know, if you, Robert Louis Stevenson mm. was obviously not working immediately around here, but he was very inspired by this West Coast as well. Yeah. It's it's really you know, and I think I'm. Um, I think I'm right in saying that the the, the film or or the play of Peter Pan was written on, on one of the Hebridean islands oh, as well. Barry, gosh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, it's very, it's really inspiring. Um, it's hauntingly beautiful. And I suppose, you know, the, the fact that it's this little archipelago of islands, it's a sort of child's little child-sized kingdoms isn't it yes and of course there's all of the wonderful stories of the of the tribes you know who became clans you know Mm -hmm. they became the clans of the campbells and the you know them all tricking each other and the lord of the isles and the son in law the lord of the isles who tricks well yes yes Mm. it's really inspiring country and so I'm not surprised that it's inspired so mu- so many writers and um, mm. and indeed composers. Oh, indeed, it's, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mendelssohn, of course, being the, the most immediate one. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an incredible landscape. 
You mentioned earlier on there about a boatman. Do you remember who the boatman was that brought you to the island? When I was little. Now, my memory is that he was called Colonel Anderson. That's right. Yes, that would be him. Yes. Is that right? That's Andrina's dad. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he was called Colonel Anderson. And he had a beautiful boat. I mean, a really beautiful boat. And that, this was just when I was little. Hmm. Um, he, he would drop us off. But then my dad got his own boat. It was such an unsuitable boat. <laughs> It was, I just look back, I'm just thinking of what all those, what everybody must have made of my dad's boat. Because my dad, he was this lovely, quiet man, but he he was a very quiet man and he is stoic the vast. He's he's the man and he's the father in the stories. He was a quiet man, but he had a wild streak, you know. (laughs) He had a... He was very adventurous and he he didn't really um it's difficult to describe. We discovered after he died, for instance, he had no GPS on the boat because he thought it spoiled the wilderness experience. I mean Eek. what is that? Yeah. And when he was a young man, the boat that he had, it was a kind of it was more like a little speed, it was like a metal motor, but it was not a suitable boat. I'm talking about this laughingly. It's not very. It's what the what the local guys must have made of my dad's <laughs> boat. I mean, the, this crazy English guy. You know, what was he doing well, with that boat? No one's. Uh, yeah, you were, you, were, you all made it there and back. Though that's, that's the thing. <laughs> you sound like my dad. You sound like my dad. Um, I mean, later on, I mean, now, now, you know, in later later days, he had a rib, which is much mm. more, you know, that's yeah. a more practical, that's a more practical yeah. thing. But back in the day, it was, oh, it was such a, um, but everybody was very polite. I don't think anybody said, what are you yeah. thinking of going out in that? You know, it was a little blue, like it was, it was more like a little speedboat. Um <sighs> <laughs> Good for the dock pond. But yes, yeah. Yes. And how how did they, you mentioned as well the, the builders of the house. Who were the people that built the house for you, if you remember? Yeah. No, that was, uh, this is when I was little. This is pre when I was nine. And now uh, Mr. Ferguson, mm-hmm. Mr. Turner, mm-hmm. and Ronnie Campbell. Ronnie Campbell came, he helped when I was nine because Mr. Turner's son really sadly died. Uh, yeah, so Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie first came out when I was I, I was about nine. That was a very bad moment because he yeah. was so young. Um, this young boy, um, I, he was he, to me. He seemed like a hero, you know. Who was? Because yeah. um, uh, he, he must have been eighteen, nineteen. You know, when you're nine, that yeah, you know, him doing wonderful card tricks and things. Mm. Um, anyway, he died in a tragically in a, in a tractor accident. So then Ronnie came out and helped build the house and i remember at the beginning you know we were always because we were still camping and i remember being so jealous of that those guys had the little house and everything but it was a little tiny little hut mm. and then yeah from when i was nine um then um yeah my dad got this boat and then we spent the whole summer but there was still no television so my dad was and there still isn't any television so my dad was telling us stories about you know, from the islands roundabout, and you know that was always very exciting. 
looking at it earlier on from above um, on Google Maps, and I was noticing all the old um, Fianagan, the the run rig system, all the old kind of farming systems that were there of you know where they plant the tatties and things like that. Can you, do you have a sense of the history of the island of the people who'd been there before? Well, you see, this is that. Well, my dad, of course, he was the one who who would tell me uh, uh, about that or what he could find out. Um, but I always, I mean, that was incredibly exciting to the imagination. I mean, having just to say, this was the 1970s. Mm. And the notion of childcare in the 1970s was to open up the front door, wherever you were. Yeah. It, when we were in London, where, I, you know, the baby would be put out to have their nap in the front, in front of the house. Because Lovely. fresh air, you know, good for the baby. Nobody yeah. thought the baby was going to get nicked, you know. Wherever you were in in the British Isles, yeah. the children ran wild. You, yeah, and that was one of the magic of this. You know, you can imagine little. You know, we went out and mm. again, this is probably not health and safety. You know, we went out in rubber dinghies with our life jackets. We, you know, we explored caves and and for me. So I'm, what I'm trying to say is that I explored a lot of the. You know, we were there the whole summer. There was a lot of exploring to do. And, and lots of little ruined houses. And that always fascinated me yeah. because I was always thinking, who was here? Who were, yeah. and, and then making up who was there. And I was always fascinated. So I was always asking my dad or trying to get a sense of who lived, lived here. And this is what I'm, I'm about to tell you stories that my dad tell, <laughs> told me. <laughs> so that would be I amazing. Thank you. Yeah. I always, you know, there's always a danger. It's not true. I, this is not being fact checked, um, but it inspired me. That's called me. the folk process. That's what that That's is. That's called the folk pro process. So what my dad told me was that the, the, the inhabitant before us, like in the house which had fallen down by the time, you know, um, we started going there 50 years ago, there was a guy who lived on there who my dad called Johnny Collins, eh? Oh, you're doing a thumbs up. That means he's my heard dad of, yeah, 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 yeah. He's yeah. heard of it. Um, and Johnny Collinsay lived on. He's my dad said on the island on his own. Uh, and my dad told a story about how he how he he owned a white stallion, Johnny Johnny Collinsay, and he used to stay on the island the whole time. He had no boat, which I could relate to because we spent quite a long time on the island with no boat. But every year, his white stallion would swim across to uh, Gometra, and Johnny Collinsay, who couldn't swim, would hold on to the stallion's tail, and the stallion would go to cover all the mares on Gometra. That was the story my dad told me, and I don't know whether it's true, but I sort of I do believe it. Because, you know, dear. <laughs> a randy horse with a man tied to its tail getting across yeah. the sound there. Hello there. Where are the ladies at? Yes, I can imagine I, that. I, I, can I can imagine it. And I can imagine that, um, you know, you can make that trip. The deer are always yeah. swimming across. Yes. So, yes. yeah. So a horse could easily make that trip. Actually, the, the islands are so close to each other. There's such a, you know, we... Once we got a boat, we were always nipping across that beautiful spot on Alva. Ormig. Called, yes. Mm. Um, we were always going across there because the scalloping was amazing. It's That's such when a I had my stag night. 
Did you? Yeah, my friends and I walked over uh, with Colin Morrison. Um, he's one of my dearest friends. Oh, uh, Colin! We, yeah. So we walked across and uh, we had barbecued scallops and oysters off the shore and then walked back and had dinner and beerling. And it was just, oh, it was wonderful. Absolutely magical. It's the most magical spot there. Yeah. And on the spring tides, yeah. were you, was it in the spring? It was. It was a springtide, but it was unfortunately the pressure was, uh, I think, high, uh, higher, or, or so the water was up up the shore a bit from where it could have been. But yeah, I believe it's all just covered in clappy doos and yeah, just um, scallops doing their thing. Yeah, yeah. There would there would be certain times of yeah, there'd be certain spring tides. Well, I mean, because you could see people diving for scallops there mm. quite a bit. Obviously, we didn't have diving equipment, but on spring tides, the really high ones, everything would be. All that incredible eel eel grass. Mm. I think that's what I, I think that's the right term. <laughs> My dad would tell me, you know, the the it would all be exposed, and all that scallops would start glopping, and amazing, incredible place, really magical place. There's some um, a story that was mentioned as well. Um, when I was again talking to Colin about um, speaking to you, he said something about um, the the rats. Someone McFadgins and the rats. Is that a tale that you remember as well? What, there was a plague of rats, and that's why was that was was that really? why John Collinsay was supposed to have left or something? Oh, I'm trying know. to mixing up my stories. Right, I, um, I don't know at all. Just Colin had mentioned McFadgins and the rats. McFadgins and the rats. I hadn't heard that story. I had heard there was another story further back that my dad uh, told me about. There was some some laird who got put on Little Collinsay you know, for doing something naughty. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what he's supposed to have done. But basically he'd annoyed all the other local lads. And so he got put on, on Little Collins A for for that reason as a sort of punishment. Wow. Um, that was going quite far back. That was more eighteenth century. And Johnny Collins A was mid it was relatively recent. I think that was um early, early twentieth um, century. But certainly when I've looked up in the censuses and things, it's really interesting about the population of Little Conzay. This is when I was much older. Obviously, I didn't know about mm. this as a child. It was a real mixture of populations. I mean, people went on the island for a bit and then they moved on. The censuses, you know, were quite, and I'm not sure what the history of that was. Was that It was just, it was tenant farmers, I suppose, that they that were farming the land. But it didn't seem to be, continuously inhabited by the same families it seemed to be a rotation of families was it a macquarie hold was it the macquaries had it originally from being so oh, now the macquarie was the naughty lad who was put on <laughs> i do now that is definitely he was i don't know what he'd done that macquarie but he was one of the ones who was put on there i no, i'm I, th- I think i'm talking about the last inhabitants there before the clearances hmm. it was probably what i'm talking about hmm. Um, but even pre the clearances, it seemed to be a rotating number of, of families because different families were coming up in the censuses. But it did support quite a few, you know, there were lots of little ruined houses, you know, which I found on in different locations on the island. And it would have been inhabited, you know, for many thousands of years, I'd have thought, even before the Vikings, because of it having a fresh sort of source of water. And all of those islands, um, oh, yeah. you know. Where is yeah. the spring? Where is the spring on the island? Or are there many springs on the island? There is one spring, and it's just just up from the house. You know, that's very lucky. You know, you're obviously very difficult to live somewhere without spring 
you know, fresh water, yeah. um, in, in particularly in olden times. But all of those kingdom, you know, those Hebridean islands and, you know, out to the Orkneys, huge, hugely um, important ancient kingdoms because it was so much easier to travel over water than it was over land. So the history, you can feel the history. Maybe that's why it's a, such an attraction for story makers is yeah. you can feel the history of thousands and thousands of years of human beings and human stories. And as you say, the farming, you know, the irrigation lines, you can mm. see the, the peat where everything's been dug up and it's, it's, all, you know, it's all there. Extraordinary. It was far easier to kind of trot across to Ireland and, you know, um, than it was to go into, you know, Oxford from mm. here. I mean, you're much closer yeah. to people in Ireland. You're much closer to, you know, people, you know, across the water than you are even into the interior of Scotland. It, 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 yeah, much, much easier to, to travel across. Funny enough, I mean, I suppose it's a bit easier in the northern Scandinavian countries, because at least they had snow, yes. so they could they could they could travel exactly, mm -hmm. and they did. Yeah. They travelled across skiing and sleighs, and but you know, it, it, you know, Scotland, you know, mountainous country, you know, crossing the interior of Scotland was yeah. a mammoth feat. Whereas if you had a little boat, you you could you know all of those islands were, were it was the sea road. That's what they would call it, the sea road. Yeah. get a picture now of kind of of your roots as well um we were talking before recording about your grandfather would it be okay to say a little bit about your grandfather and and the extraordinary thing that that he did during the war as well oh yes this is my mother's father alan who i just loved he was a great storyteller and he never told me much though about his experience during the war because he wasn't allowed to <laughs> because he was in the official secrets act because he was a spy he volunteered to be a spy. You have to allow my dad. My grandfather was my hero mm. as well, along with my dad. I, I, um, I just loved him. But again, his bravery. Imagine volunteering to be a spy. You know, if you were a spy and you were caught, you would you would be tortured and 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 killed automatically. The bravery of that. And later on, when, when he could talk about it a bit. I just was astonished by that sort of bravery. He was parachuted behind enemy lines, you know, darkness, into Albania. And he was the only person of his mission to return alive. And he, a very modest man, wouldn't really talk about it, but his best friend died in his arms of frostbite because they were running through um, streams to, to evade the Nazis, the Nazi um, army and my grandpa caught frostbite and and he just lost one of his toes i remember one of his toes was bit but his best friend lost all of his toes and, and died of frostbite in his arms imagine that bravery imagine that bravery you know young man i suppose you know same age as my daughter 20, 24 25 and and they said when he he was eventually discovered by another team of allies that had gone out to try and rescue them and he was sort of he was still singing songs he was a great singer 
and and it was so out of place that this you know he had a very sort of I don't know he had a very sort of cheery kind of my grandpa very sort of you know he was very old-fashioned British is what I would call you know and the out of placeness of this very old-fashioned in this sort of you know having gone through this extraordinary but so many of that generation they went through they were so brave weren't they and they went through incredible experiences yeah what was the nature of the work that he was doing there? Was it negotiations with the underground, within Albania? Was it trying to set up opposition to Nazi regime? What, do you remember anything of what he said of that? I think, I think it was very difficult because, <laughs> I mean, he didn't speak about it very much. Um, I've had to do my own investigations past his death into it. But I think what he sort of intimated is, is it was very difficult because you were sort of, policy was changing was changing a lot of the time oh my God. and that made it very i know and that made it very difficult i know he said when he went back to albania he was very very upset because some of the people who had sheltered him when he was operating there had subsequently that they had been mur murdered you know and because for sheltering you know, being on the wrong side. And I know the other thing, I mean, my grandfather had a very, very difficult time. Later on um, in the war, I don't think this was Albania, I think it was later on in the war that quite a lot of his operations were betrayed by one of those spies. I can't remember whether it was Philby or one of the other oh, ones. God. Um, so there was quite a lot of that. You know, espionage was a was a very difficult area to be working in because you know yeah it was pretty grim and so he was he would be sending people in and they couldn't understand why they kept on getting discovered and and it was because um they were being betrayed by 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 this one of their own and it's very difficult to imagine my wonderful grandmother operating in that kind of a world because he was such a wonderful kind warm person obviously very brave and very principled um but i should think he would have found, found that very very difficult yeah but again that generation a bit like my dad and i talk about those i admire those sort of people so much because partly because i'm not like that at all i, I would make a terrible spy i tell everybody everything make a social faux pas straight away and be like oh yeah i just saw him two minutes ago he's down there he looks really happy he's got this kind of rifle with him i don't know why but yeah yeah i know, I know. wires and stuff i have no idea i think he's snaring for rabbits but yeah i, I know but 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 I admire that so much in that generation. Yeah. They were very much, you know, they, you know, they they were those stoic. kind of reserved stoic. They were stoic. They were stoic, and I think that's also why my portrait of stoic, in a way, resonates for a lot of people. Yeah. And my relationship with my darling father and. Yeah. You know, who we loved each other so much, but sometimes we didn't, we couldn't communicate properly. And I think that resonates for a lot of people, um, you know, that that older generation. But yes, my um, grandpa was also good friends with um, there was all of those spies. There were some incredible books about them as well, like Paddy Lee Farmer, and mm. they all they had they were an extraordinary lot 
Uh, ben McIntyre's books on these guys is really, are really interesting. I've gobbled them up. They're just amazing. Oh, he's amazing, isn't he? Um, and, and his latest book, Colditz. Have you read the Colditz nope. one? I'll get that one. Thank uh, you. Absolutely brilliant. Um, just extraordinary. I, and again, you could not make it up. I mean, it's like you're reading this and you're thinking, this can't be true. But yeah, that's a really that's a really good story. But yeah, uh, yeah, they, they were an amazing generation. And I suppose, yes, they, you know, How Train Dragon is a sort of tribute in a way to that warrior that warrior spirit, those, you know, those people who, you know, parachuted in Albania or indeed like the Vikings who, you know, who go out into storms and, you know, without knowing where they're going. And, but, you know, fish, fishermen do the same thing. You know, I'm thinking of a fisherman, Robin Cow, you know, who was a fisherman who's got a son who's still fishing. You know, you look at these guys, and I remember looking up at them as as a kid when they were on much more sensible boats. But you look at them, and you think, "Wow, the bravery of going out!" You have some kind of exposure, which I had, to because my dad <laughs> was fearless, and so we go out in storms. And you think going out in storms like that, so brave, isn't it? Brave, and not everybody knows how to swim. In fact, a lot of fishermen don't seem to know how to swim. My grandfather was a fisherman, and, and he maintained that it was the it was, he'd learned when he needed. Yeah, when he needed, but also he's not wrong in a way because the cold would kill you. You know, they all say it's the Gulf Stream, but you know it's flipping go. <laughs> you know, the cold would kill you just as much as anything else. I was reading a poem this morning, and um, I love um, Seamus Heaney. He's one of my absolute heroes. And yeah. uh, there's a book, uh, I'm doing a project about poetry around the schools and, and Mull soon in Gaelic and English. And uh, there's The Rattle Bag and The School Bag are two volumes that they had, uh, Seamus Heaney and Ted Hughes mm -hmm. released. And there's in there, there's one poem called The Viking Terror. And it's only one stanza long. And it's, it's absolutely incredible. It's an Irish poem from the 15th or 16th century and it says yeah. it's only one stanza and it's um there there's there's uh, horses on the waves tonight there's wind is blowing tonight if you're not the viking terror and the, <gasps> just that to make you know to think <sighs> okay i'm gonna make a poem about that because that's the most significant thing is chop eight right the vikings won't be out tonight yes they would be out tonight and uh, the amount of times i'd i'd lie on because the, the weather can change in an instant can't it yeah you know, from heaven, you know, just beautiful paradise to the storm clouds in. And imagine I'd be lying on the top of the, the kind of hill imagining what if you saw a Viking sail on the horizon? What would you do? Where would you go? And of course you'd hide in a cave. That's what you do, yep. very sensibly. You'd yep. hide all your possessions in a cave and they did, <laughs> yeah. you know, hoping, you know, for, oh my goodness. But yeah, it it's a... It's a strong landscape and the people who live, you know, are brave people. It's, it's you know, going out and into that kind of, it's, this is not the Mediterranean. This is proper, this is proper stuff, you know, and you, you make a mistake and you get things wrong and it's, you know, next stop America. <laughs> you know, isn't it? The island was very much my dad's place, I suppose. And and how strange a dragon 
you know, he's inspired, you know, that's, this is the place that inspired How to Train Your Dragon. I mean, it is, you know, the Isle of Burke, I mean, Little Colonsay is the, the Isle of Burke. Um, so that's why I suppose, and it's so associated in my head with my, with my dad, because that was where he loved. I would love to know more about his sense of wilderness. Why did wilderness appear, appeal to him? But also, yeah, how did your mum feel about this as well? And what were her passions in life as well? So, so my dad, you know, was absolutely passionate about wilderness. And, you know, that's why, you know, he's chairman at the RSPB. And, you know, my whole childhood, I remember he was so excited, for instance, that this is back in the 1970s when they were introducing the first pair of sea eagles. Oh, yeah. It, well, you know, now yeah. that's a lovely success story. That's I'm telling it because that's a wonderful success story because they've now got how many breeding pairs in the um you know, um, I'm, I think there's a sea eagle watch or there's something, isn't there? Yeah, there's all sorts of things. Yeah, there's wardens. Uh, and yeah, 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 yeah. So I remember, you know, being sort of him. I remember age nine when we went to the island for the first time, actually, after John had died, very sadly, the young man. So my father came out because he knew it would be difficult for um, his father to come out to the island for the first time after his son had died. And so I came along as as kind of, you know, to to lighten, you know, yeah. the, the, the wee one. They said the wee one. I was yeah. the wee one to make people feel a bit less sad. But I remember it, it was just me on the, on the island and, and Ronnie and Mr. Ferguson. I always called them Mr. Ferguson and Mr. Turner. I, I, I don't remember what their real names were. I wasn't allowed to call them that properly. But I remember just being with them. And then, you know, my dad was so w wanting to find out whether or not there was sea eagles nesting on or 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 that was buzzards. I remember he, him dangling over the edge of this cliff and I had to handle on hang on to his ankles and him dangling over the cliff. And, and I remember looking and thinking, how am I related to this person? <laughs> he loved wilderness and he felt it needed protecting and looking after, and which is why he spent all of his time, you know, chairman of all of these important organizations that are looking after wilderness and that was you know it so important to him we now know how important wilderness is because of the climate change crisis that is facing us all but for instance we were i was just chatting to this diving expedition of divers who were uh, diving around little colonsay looking for unusual and protected species and the head of the diving expedition said you know there's an incredible bank of kelp around the island. Now, this isn't a protected species, but it's a massive carbon sink. It's the underwater forests, you know. And I think what my dad had a sense of was how important these wildernesses are. And our relationship, you know, we are, <laughs> we are really dependent on these wildernesses in ways that we don't always see because it's underneath the sea or just the sheer beauty of i don't know the place but also the creatures like the dolphins the seal the just astonishing orca the you know, which we saw as a child but i'm not sure there's so many you know the sea otters oh yes watching the sea otters play and you know all of these it's incredibly important and it's very rare. And these are astonishing wildernesses. I mean, 
the Giant's Causeway, which is the same rock formation as Staffer and Fingal's Cave over on, over on, um, it's exactly, you know, that's why you've got the, yeah, the legend of the two giants, Fingal's, the one who lives in Fingal's Cave and the one who lives on the Giant's Causeway over the water and Northern Ireland, they used to throw rocks at one another. Well, that's the same rock formation. And over across the way, that's a wild heritage site over mm. on Giant's Cause, Causeway. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wild, you know, this is, this is an extraordinary place. <laughs> I think my dad was drawn to it because it just is, it is truly extraordinary. <laughs> and my mum was possibly a less, <laughs> let's say, a more reluctant passenger <laughs> on, this, <laughs> on this adventure and journey. You know, um, she, was, she was pretty young when she got married. She was maybe 19 when she first went. Wow. You know, young. Wow. And then when she was going with babies, you know, 21, 22. And I think she was more nervous. She was more nervous. And she she was pretty game to go back. Must have been, yeah. I mean, I, when I say she was more nervous, she's quite adventurous as well. She's just slightly less adventurous than he was. She loved the, the painting. You know, she's a painter. And, you know, and so she would be painting mm. um the the um the flowers and the, uh, and the wildlife um so she really loved that aspect of it like he did but but she was possibly less <laughs> she, 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 fantastic it might not have been her choice but it like that yeah yeah I've got some questions here from uh, which may have you maybe answered some of them, but if it's okay to to, to, to answer them again, yeah, if that's yeah. right, this is um, from a boy called Lachlan who's at our local school here in Dervik, and he has three questions, which are first of which is what made what made you think of dragons? The second one, why did you name the boy Hiccup? And three, why are the Hi Highland cows yaks in the film? He loves. He's a really interested in farming stuff. So yes, what made you think of dragons? Well, dragons, it's because of the Vikings believe that dragons really existed. And if you spend any time around here, around the west coast of Mark, you can, it, my goodness, you can see why they, you know, we, we once caught a, a, a conger eel in a lobster pot. And I still remember, oh my God, six foot long conger eel. And if you... <laughs> don't like them. <laughs> no, you're quite right. They got those huge teeth. So you can see why they believe that dragons really existed, because you know Chinese dragons look a bit like gongorils, don't they? You know, so why dragons? What's what was the next? So Vikings believed that dragons really existed. Yeah. Why did you name the boy Hiccup? Because Hiccup is another name for an accident. At the beginning, they think that Hiccup is an accident because he's not like the other Vikings, because he solves problems not through the old other Vikings solve problems by punching them. And Hiccup solves problems with his creativity and his cleverness and he, through speaking Dragonese and he can dragon whisper. And so he's a different kind of a, um, a hero. And so his name is Hiccup, which is another name for an accident. But they need to learn he's the best thing that ever happened to them because there are some problems that are too big to punch. Yeah, You have to solve them with your cleverness and your creativity and your emptiness. And what was the third question? Why are the Highland cows yaks in the film? Now, that was not my call. 
may I just say, that was the film company. I would not have done that because, of course, Highland, oh, Highland cattle. I love Highland cattle. They're so sweet, aren't they, apart from anything else? And that's what should have been there. I don't know. It was because, yeah, that was a North American thing. They got that wrong. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lachlan, for lovely, lovely questions. And I hope you enjoy the House Train Your Dragon stories as much as I do enjoy writing them. Krista, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute delight to spend time with you on this and I look forward to bumping into you in person at some point. Okay, okay. Lots of love. Cheerio. Thank you so much for your time, Krista. It was an utter delight to get to spend the time with you. There's so much to think about in what you said. Thank you too to Simon, Becky and the others in Cressida's team who made it happen. And thank you too to Lachlan for your questions. They were superb. If you're a young listener, I hope that Cressida's words inspire you to explore the world and stories around you in your own way. Interestingly, at one point Cressida mentions Colonel Anderson, whose boat took her and her family to Little Colonsy. Colonel Anderson's grandson, Robin Scott Elliot, is also a novelist for young and teen readers. For more on his work, please see the link to the episode notes. The next episode of What We Do in the Winter is a very special interview with an older gentleman who has the most remarkable memories of life here in Mull in the past. I cannot wait to share it with you. I'll also be putting out a slightly different episode with Seamus Carey of the brilliant The Reason Why podcast, which we recorded at Antoper last week. Seamus's work looks at life and identities in Cornwall and is quite exceptional. In both of our work, we're looking at similar things from different angles, so it was a fascinating conversation to have. Thank you to Nina, Rona, Tim, Louise and the team at Antoper and of course our lovely audience for a very memorable night. Seamus is currently on tour with Help, I Think I'm a Nationalist until the 18th of November when the show finishes at the Bristol Old Vic. It's a fascinating show and well worth your time. I'll put a link in the episode notes for more info. Thank you so much to our monthly subscribers. It means so much to me that you've kept supporting the project. Thank you so, so much. If you're a new listener and you want to subscribe to the podcast, we'd love to have you along for the ride. Likewise, if you're inclined to leave a review on whichever platform you use to listen, that would be brilliant and it would help the project out immensely. If I can tempt you to make a donation to the podcast, as I do it entirely off my own back, it would be very greatly appreciated. You can find out more information on how to do so on our Donate tab on the What We Do in the Winter website. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Take care, wherever you are. Mo'er and thang. Shinakate. <laughs>